All right, here we are, another episode of Keel Conversations. I am your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. All right, today I'm jamming with Jay, who is a product designer and UX researcher for Mindful Technology. He advises startups as a mindfulness coach, speaker, tension activist, and honestly, just a flat out awesome human being, which you will feel in this conversation. He's got some really great writing around the theme of attention activists. Um, and I highly recommend you sign up for his newsletter to stay up to date with those themes. He's working on the book on this as well. I put the link in the show notes. Also, Jay's prompts, powerful stuff. Here are three that he left in the conversation. How does my responsiveness to this situation align to my deeper values? How are my personal biases influencing my view of this situation? What emotional aspects am I not considering? Really, really powerful questions to journal on for your own mental fitness. So enjoy this conversation. And as always, wishing you the very best in all your practices, making you feel great and living life to the max. Have the best day yet. Jay, first question for every guest on this podcast is the same one, really, to kick things off. And it is, who are you or what defines you as a human? That's an easy one. <laughs> Just to start <laughs> off light, you know? <laughs> um, I think that's been a topic of active exploration. Uh, first thing that comes to mind is this you know, concept of, you know, you are what you pay attention to. So that, you know, um, you kind of just sort of become whatever it is you spend your time with. And I think I, I think I mean that both in the immediate present, but also sort of in the long term. Um, so for me personally, you know, I've spent a lot of time with family and I'm a new father. So that's a huge part of who I am. I've spent a lot of time, um, with technology, designing technology. So I'm a designer. Um, spent a lot of time playing and writing music. So I'm a musician, spent a lot of time reading science fiction and fantasy. So I don't know if there's a simple word, maybe I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, <laughs> I spent a lot, I spent a lot of time you know, watching anime, playing video games. So that's a part of maybe less so recently, but that's definitely something I've paid a lot of attention to. And I've certainly spent a, a fair bit of time practicing mindfulness and various other related contemplative practices. And so not only is that a huge part of who I am, but also a source of active reflection and inquiry on this question of who I am and, and what it means to be aware and human. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's what comes to mind. It's well, thank you, Jay. And, um, First of all, I'm, I always started off like that, and you know why, just avoid uh, job titles and, and whatnot. Um, but I do want to, you know, back up a little bit and just express how excited I am to have you on the show because we, we have done some great work together. And, man, you are really um, in the zone when it comes to all things wellness and mindfulness and I think just a great human in general. And, and, and that, that the way you answered that, I mean, I've asked that about 135 times now, and it's the first time um, 
someone has answered it in the in, in the way of what you pay attention to. And that I don't know, when you said that, it really hit home because I feel like that's the whole evolution, right? I mean, I, I know at one point you were you're pretty heavy into a, a, a band and the music is still a part of your life, but uh, you're probably paying less attention to that, right? Uh, versus something else um, that you maybe so, so, so have you thought about that? Like how, because paying attention in itself is a loaded statement because oftentimes we're not paying attention um, to a lot of things that are happening. Like how has that evolved over, uh, over your life? You know, the things that you're really focusing on. Well, other than when you're asleep, maybe, I mean, you're always paying attention to something. Sure. So if you're not paying attention to, you know, who's in front of you, you're probably paying attention to your thoughts and your daydreams or whatever it might be. Yeah. And and I think it's, I think it's a good question because I think this framing, you know, just by thinking of it in this way leads to a pretty fluid sense of self Mm. that I think a lot of times myself and many people get hung up on these questions of identity yeah, and I, and I think this framing of it allows me to much more fluidly and seamlessly not get trapped into the label of whether I'm a musician or not, and just sort of keep up my love for music. Right? Sure. Less about me and my identity, and it's more about music. So in some ways, yes, there was a time in my life where, um, you know, me and a couple of guys abandoned regular life were living out of a jam studio and spending eight to 10 hours a day with instruments in our hands. Um, but I still pay a lot of attention to music. I still play a lot. I still listen to a lot. It's a huge part of my life, you know, just because it's not the like main trajectory of my professional life doesn't mean it's still not very present. Uh, both in the sense of of course listening and loving um all the new music that i'm constantly in search of and finding and falling in love with but also you know i've I've not been on stages nearly as often as i used to but the guitar is still in my hand you know often every day and uh, i'm still writing songs and it's just a part of who i am and i think it's a great example because if you get wrapped up in your identity like this is my career i'm a this is my tradition and this is my spirituality. This is my religion. This is my culture. It makes it really hard to kind of roll with the punches and flow with the constant changes that life brings to us. And and I think I've found a lot of joy in actually rolling with those changes and exploring them and evolving with them. And I think that's a huge part of uh, this way of thinking about it allows you to evolve with reality as opposed to resist every change that, that happens. I mean, that's a powerful statement and it's, it's, I think something we probably all struggle with, right? Just, um, resisting change and, um, cause it almost feels intuitive to do that, right? It's it pushes us out of our uncomfort or, or our comfort zone, I should say. So, I mean, for, for you, Jay, do you, have you always, have you always been like this or were there, were there moments in, in your life where you feel like you kind of pulled up into the 40,000 foot view and just, you know what, I, I need to, to reshift the focus on, on how I'm looking at this, or is this just, this is Jay, like, this is how you grew up and you've continued this path. You know, it's just, it's been a process and it's still an ongoing process. You know, I think 
Um, there are certainly some aspects of my childhood where I was exposed to some of this thinking, but I think over the past, you know, 10, 20 years, there's been a number of moments I'd say where I sort of jumped off a cliff, like something in my current situation wasn't right, took a risk, took a gamble and tried something completely new. And in the process ended up with, you know, you said like 40,000 feet. I don't know where you got that number, but like ended up with a view from 10,000 feet and then a view from 20,000 feet and then a view from 30,000 feet. And maybe I'm at 40,000 now. I don't know, but there's definitely these, numbers up. Yeah, I know we're just yeah, wheeling and dealing here, but I think there's just this, this process of, of getting a, a kind of larger view about what's going on. And, and the more that I've jumped off cliffs and the, the higher view I've gotten, the more I've been able to sort of fluidly move through those changes. So no, I don't think I've always been the way I am in this moment. And I don't think I will continue to be in the future either. Cause I, I think that, that entire framing runs contrary to what we're talking about, which is that, you know, we're changing all the time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so of course. definitely don't think so. Yeah. Um, why don't you explain a little bit of some of the, the main work that you're involved in right now? And, um, and we'll, we'll definitely jump into the book soon too. But I, like what I'm thinking about is some of the stuff that you, you helped us with around just design and um, human behavior, really. I mean, because I, I, I really feel like the work you're doing is super unique and is so needed right now in in our society right and you've you've found this way to do this work in a it's, I, I don't even know how to describe it just a such an authentic and kind of pure way while you know advancing technology because i mean there's 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 a lot of argument around just technology and how it's just running this into the ground and creating all these mental health issues and and there's truth to that for sure but at the same time, you're doing some really awesome work um, to bring good tech, you know, to the forefront. And, and I think kind of always framing up and or helping guide people to be conscious of the decisions they're making when it comes to technology. Right. So I'd love to just just for the listeners, get a little bit of a description of, of the work that you're passionate about. So you said something there, which was interesting, which was, you know, good technology, right? So I, I think of that, that phrase, or maybe even the phrase good design. Um, and the way I'd frame my thinking on this is that what I'm really trying to bring into the world is good design in all senses of the word good. So when you think of that phrase, good design, maybe what comes to mind is like something really, you know, that really solves a problem or that's easy to use. But you also might think of something that's beautiful or aesthetically elegant. But there's another meaning of the word good, which is this idea of like ethical or, you know, doing a service for other people, right? The, the sort of moral good, which I think is just as important and I think needs to be factored into the conversation of good design. So for me personally, you know, found myself in a design career working for whoever would pay on the side, trying to find myself exploring mindfulness and my own mental health and well-being and physical health too, like many of us are exploring. Um, and at some point, I just kind of, you know, I think this was maybe around 2010, just sort of clicked on that these don't have to be like individual compartments in my world and started to explore the intersection of like, what about, you know, design for mental health and wellness and mindfulness and well-being? And since then, I've worked on maybe about nine or 10 different 
um, you know, you could call them transformative technologies or mindful technologies, um, where I'm trying to bring sort of the latest and greatest in terms of design process, specifically a human-centered design process where we put those we're trying to serve at the heart of our design decisions and trying to apply that in a broader sense. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're trying to just sell people things that they don't need, it absolutely can be beneficial to put those people at the heart of your design process. You can study them and understand them and use that understanding to basically exploit them, to understand their weaknesses and trigger them to purchase your offering, even if they don't really need it, because that'll make you rich. But that's where that other definition of the word good comes in. I think the ethical side is if you really care about them, if you study them and understand them and spend some time with them because you care about them, that you really care about them, then these same design processes, human-centered design processes, I think get to live up to their true initial potential, which is this idea that we are going to actually use that understanding to serve them better and make their lives better and allow them to live closer to their own intentions and values. And so I think that's the underlying understanding that's fueling all this work around mindfulness, mental health, and well-being in technology. Have you, I mean, to 2010, I mean, that that's a while back. And, yeah. you know, I think right now, as we're speaking, you know, 2019, um, people understand that a little bit more, right? Just even, even just the term mindfulness and, and this type of technology and whatnot. But, but being present about, or I should say around, like what you're talking about, the, the definition of good all-encompassing, like how have you seen that evolve? You, you must, it, it must be a, a really interesting journey from some of those initial 2010 conversations to, to now. Yeah, I think specifically in technology, you know, the heyday is over a little bit. Like we're starting to see some of the stuff that that I've been talking about, that I've been writing in some, even in some of my academic publications early in 2011, 2012, as well as, you know, just talking with friends over, you know, a tea or a beer or something like that. Um, you're starting to see these conversations start to emerge in mainstream media and publication, right? Like, so people know what the attention economy is now. And there are conversations all over the place about the privacy concerns and the mental health concerns about all this social media and mobile technology. So, so that conversation has certainly um, transformed the way we think about Silicon Valley, right? There was like a whole time where tech was just, you know, it was the heyday where we just had this utopian vision of our cyborg lives and how we're all going to be interconnected you know, ironically, I think one of the big promises of the internet was this sense of like egalitarian, open discussion where everyone is connected and everyone has a voice. So it's like, it's, it's, it's super heartbreaking to see this technology destabilizing the foundations of democracy, right? It's, it's actually having the complete opposite effect. So, yeah. you know, it's starting to, to become really real. Um, you know, the rubber is hitting the road. Um, and so that's one whole aspect of the way I've seen the conversation change. And I think within specifically in the field of design, um, we're still nascent, but you're starting to see a few people talk a little bit about the ethics of design, that, um, that designers wield an incredible amount of power within organizations. And at the same time, um, 
they're probably the people who are best suited to advocate for something other than the bottom line. Obviously, that's going to be a part of their responsibility, but also a part of their responsibility is to serve, you know, the the target audience of whatever it is that we're creating. And so I think designers in any organization are some of the people that are best positioned to have the nuanced conversation between how we meet our organizational needs and become a successful, sustainable organization while making sure we live true to our mission, vision, and values and really serve people, right? Because, you know, Facebook's mission statement is to make the world more connected. Airbnb's mission statement is to something about increasing the sense of belonging. But how are we operationalizing those? Like, what does connected mean? Because if I just have a thousand friends on my Facebook profile, but I'm feeling more socially isolated and depressed than ever, are we really making the world more connected, right? Yeah, and totally. if I'm feeling great in my Airbnb, um, because I feel like I belong as a tourist, but the neighborhood is being destabilized by the fact that the, the sense of community is going away because half the people there don't actually live there and and people are, are buying up residential properties and turning them into what are essentially entrepreneurial hotels. Are we really making people feel like they belong when we're destroying neighborhoods, right? So I think mm. there's like some deeper conversations that are happening around the ethics of design as well. Totally. It's, it's interesting. Like I would love to be... It, it, you know, I'm going to watch what I say or well, frankly, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> send in any mail you'd you like, but it, I mean, like even Facebook's obviously an easy one. There's been so much uh, going on over there, but it's, you know, when it first started, obviously it, like any of these companies, even, even in, even in this, in the wellness space, like I wonder what'll happen as some of these organizations just get to just colossal levels where, at one point, something shifts, right? Like, I'm sure Zuckerberg wasn't, you know, planning from day one, at, you know, in his dorm room that he, to influence elections and, and all this craziness, right? But I guess at some point, there, you know, you have to be really open to social responsibility and and, and take some proactive action, right? Because it's no longer at some point it crosses. It's no longer the dorm room project. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why the, the phrase unintended consequences is is pretty yeah, is totally. pretty appropriate for a lot of this. And I, I think that's a sign of hope, right? Because there are a lot of people that I, you know, associate with in these attention activist communities that really do villainize tech, right? And um I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, certainly there's gotta be some bad actors out there, don't get me wrong. But sure. my sense is that people on the whole even in tech and in other areas, you know, trying to make the world a better place. And some of these unintended consequences come from the fact that we just don't understand scale. Some of them come from the fact that the technologies we're using um, have a have sort of a vast uh, impact, which is much more, much further beyond what we can even imagine. Yeah. Um, some of it is just coming from the fact that we as individuals have narrow biased perspectives, right? Like, I mean, I don't know what, we were expecting, you know, when a bunch of white men created a technology that scaled to the whole world, but certainly there's going to be some unintended consequences there, right? When, sure. when, when women or people of color try to use those technologies, right? So yeah. I don't necessarily think that the in the majority case that these are nefarious villains. I just think that we need to identify that this is a problem, especially in our world of scale where, you know, Zuckerberg can be in his dorm room feeling lonely 
And like, you know, my, my, my joking hypothesis is that he's like trying to meet girls and his, his approach is to build a website, which is, you know, very engineer. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and next thing you know, 10 years later, and I'm not even kidding, 10 years later, you know, is that famous shot of all the cameras in front of him as he testifies to Congress for accidentally breaking an election, right? 10 years is a fast timescale. Like no human so could track true. with that level of growth. Um, and, you know, I think one a, a fun example of this is to think personally, like sometimes you'll see in the media, like a celebrity or a business leader will get lambasted or even a politician will get lambasted for how they handle a situation or some sort of corruption. And I think that's definitely warranted. But I also wonder every individual that's criticizing them, if that individual were subjected to the life direction of some of these people, like if tomorrow, Mark, you just blew up and became a Hollywood superstar actor and everywhere you went, you know, people were just throwing millions of dollars at, at you to act in movies. And, you know, everyone is just trying to get your attention and you could basically have anything you want in the world. Then the question becomes, how do you respond to that situation? Or if tomorrow somehow I became a head of state and I found myself trying to compose myself at the United Nations in a debate about climate change, I mean, maybe I would slip up too, right? And I think this kind of understanding um, that we can kind of allow and forgive each other for the mistakes we make because no one's perfect, but at the same time, build an atmosphere of collaboration so that we can actually address the problems that we're trying to face um, without getting so obsessed with character assassination. I think that would be a step in the right direction. So well said. And how'd you get a copy of my vision board? <laughs> <laughs> I know, oh, I know about all those, uh, those, you know, independent films you're starring in. So yeah, exactly. exactly. I'll let your listeners go young, Google that now. The young old man. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned something and it's something I wanted to cover with you. Um, but you use the words, uh, attention activists. And, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of this work that you're diving into because, it's obviously something very important to you, given I imagine being a new dad and, you know, knowing that the client load you have as well, it's not like you're sitting around with abundance of spare time to start writing <laughs> on this topic. So, you know, what, what sparked the idea to start writing um, in, in this vein, for example? Because there's a, there's a book on the way. I mean, um, which, I mean, provide as much detail as you'd like, Jay. Yeah, I think the I think the realization was around 2015 or 2016. And I think I wrote my first article on the topic where I coined that term for the first time. I think that was 2016. Um, okay. And it was, I, th I think, a realization. So I was, I was, you know, maybe shoulder deep into the exploration of designing technologies for mindfulness at this point. And at the same time, I think I was personally getting a bit frustrated with how addictive and, you know, unfair a lot of the mainstream technology and advertising models were. Um, and I kind of saw this connection where the science is basically showing us that, that mindfulness is something that modifies attentional subsystems in the brain which makes sense because when you do the practice, it's all about training yourself and your ability to pay attention. Um, and we're starting to see evidence that this practice can be quite powerful and effective for those who suffer from certain 
mental health issues like anxiety, depression, pain, self-harm, uh, panic disorders, things like that. Um, and at the same time, we're starting to see evidence that these very same issues are skyrocketing in the population. Um, and that that advent, especially with young people, is correlated with the introduction of social media and mobile technologies in the lives of young people. And it just didn't strike me as a coincidence. Like, you know, and this isn't, this is something I believe will be more deeply and conclusively proven in the decade to come. But my working hypothesis, and I don't think we need to wait to act about it, which is why I'm writing, um, is that there is not a coincidence here. It's that these technologies are having a deep effect on our identities, on our relationships, on our health, on our well-being, and our politics. And the fact that, you know, when I go out and talk about mindfulness or when I, you know, am presenting about it, you know, when I did so 10 years ago, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of skepticism. And now it's becoming, you know, an easy topic that people like naturally are just like, yeah, that seems like something I could use. Mindfulness seems like something that would help me. And it doesn't seem as different and as esoteric, I think is largely because people are recognizing that their attention is being fragmented. And the idea of getting some peace and quiet, getting some calm, training your mind doesn't really seem like a stretch. In fact, quite the opposite. It seems like something we absolutely need to resist the onslaught of the attention economy. And so for me, this is the working hypothesis. And I have many peers that are working on this from a you know, technology perspective, but also from an education perspective, from a regulatory perspective. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of addressing this issue from all aspects of society because I think many of us are starting to see that connection and you're right, you know, I've got a seven-month-old baby, and already the question arises about whether it's okay for him to be looking at screens or what the issue is, um, whether that will be okay, <laughs> you, that. you know, when <laughs> yeah. phones are relevant. And, you know, I'm a kid who grew up playing video games, so, like, it's not like I think technology is evil. It's just about finding the way to, to allow it to serve us and to use it with the right framing and attitude and to make sure that, um, we're not opening a back door into everyone's mind for, you know, capitalist exploitation without, you know, having people be aware of the impact that's happening on their lives. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so, I mean, we have a three and a half year old and it's, it's definitely, you know, something on our mind too with, with screens and, and you see it all the time, right? With, with, with parents and, and kids and restaurants and they're in front of iPads and, um, you know, everyone has their own style, but I think at the core of it though, you know, the, these are technology, these, this, this is our world. It's like, we, we do live in a world with cars, despite we are trying to pull them off the road uh, more and more. Uh, like this is our environments. I feel at least the best we can do is obviously, you know, everything we talked about at the, the beginning of this conversation is make, making sure we're, we're, we're doing everything possible to create the, the environment in an, in a good way in all senses of the word. But then the, I think the other thing is just really helping frame proper relationships with technology, right? And our devices. It's like, it's the only, only industry that I can think of that, um, people are just thrown into, into the mix, right? Without, training it's like you're, you don't you're not thrown onto a piece of a, uh, of equipment in a in a shop without any training 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of that is is true of the, the actual people who create the technology as well. And that's where the ethics piece comes in. It's like, we're creating these technologies that have such a massive impact. And, you know, we've got these Stanford or, you know, MIT graduates who learn how to build the technology with no education on ethics. And then they go to these massive organizations and create features and tools and services that are reaching billions of minds and influencing the way we think, right? If you think about it in those terms, like what you think about today is going to be largely affected by what you pay attention to as you covered, as we covered at the beginning of this interview. And what you pay attention to is going to be largely impacted by the notifications and interfaces of the devices created by a small but influential few. And the media that's coming through is going to be sensationalist. And your mind is just essentially being shaped by these technologies uh, to a huge degree. And the main incentive of the technology platforms, as well as the media companies and the app companies that use those platforms, is all to just sort of hook you by whatever means possible. So that's why you've got all these moral outrage stories dominating the headlines, all these negative things being pushed in your feed. You've got social media full of like all the highlights of people you know's life with none of the lowlights, giving you a sense that everyone's living it up while you're, you know, here alone at home on your phone. And um, that's that's shaping your life. And I, I think when it comes to kids, yeah, there's this aspect of like how much screen time, but there's also this aspect of you as their parent, right? When you're not paying attention to them and you're paying attention to your phone instead, what impact does that have? You know, there was that still face experiment in the 70s. It was like Dr. Tronic, I think was his name, and basically showed how a parent's reactions affect the emotional development of a baby um, by having like the mother, you know, smile and talk to the baby and then compare that to the mother just having a completely still face in front of the baby. And the, you know, almost painful experience that the that the baby has watching their mother with a completely still face. Now, what do you yeah. think is happening when the mother is looking at their phone while the baby's looking at them? It's it's exactly the same thing. You're you're giving them a still face inadvertently. So how much still face is my baby getting? That's like, it's like a new question that I need to ask myself every day. Totally. <laughs> right. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of open questions here. And like what I was saying earlier is that it's like, you know, we're going to need collaboration, right? There's a, there's a piece of regulation. There's a piece of science to understand these issues and what's really happening. What's okay. What's not okay. We're going to need tech companies to bring ethics to the table. We're going to need design schools to teach designers a little bit of the responsibility here. But I also think there's a piece that we can do on the individual level. And that's a huge part of attention activism for me too, because some of my peers are, you know, the Center for Humane Technology, for example, are testifying to US Congress and talking to world leaders and tech leaders to think about how we might change the situation. And I think my angle is more, all of you out there listening, all the individuals who feel like, you know, this is a real issue in their lives, we don't just have to wait for these organizations to hopefully fix things. Yeah. I think the the thing that we can do in daily life is, you know, bring mindfulness to our interactions and our relationship with technology, both in the sense of literally practicing mindfulness and training our ability to pay attention and be a, a, aware of what we're paying attention to, but also, you know, 
noticing how this technology is impacting us and, and, and sort of setting limits. So for example, I don't allow any uh, internet in the bedroom. And that's just a limit I've set because I've, you know, through, you know, not some sort of sense of sense of formal meditation practice, but just through my self-awareness have noticed that using my phone really late in the evening or really early in the morning years ago, I noticed that was having a really detrimental impact on my energy, my sleep, my mood, and my mental health. So there's kind of a piece of mindfulness there that allows me to make these decisions and set these rules in our lives. So there's a lot you can do in your daily life that's, a, that's sort of an attention activist stance for you and your family that I think is just as important. I love it. And, you know, I think what excites me most about all of this is, well, A, I, I love how you framed up that, you know, individually, we, we don't have to wait, right? We don't have to wait for the policy. And I think that that's super smart. At the same time, you know, those policies and, and, and all those conversations are also starting to happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm super hopeful. But I think out of all of this is that, you know, as an individual, as you start practicing mindfulness in, in whatever way you get started, as soon as you start going down that path, I mean, I, I want to say the byproduct, depending on why you started, but the byproduct, really the whole result of it, you, you'll actually feel better, right? So, I mean, there, there's almost zero, I don't want to say almost, there, there's zero downside for picking up a practice like this, right? It's just a matter of getting, it's, it, I think, a matter of, of finding the, the trigger, right? Getting someone started. And at least what I found personally, you know, you, you start with meditation, if, if that's the case, and all of a sudden you're journaling or vice versa, or you're, you're doing X, Y, you know, Z, there's so many different uh, options for people. And that's just, that, that just, for me, at least provides a lot of hope. Because as soon as you start feeling the consequences or the results of things that you're doing, like that's when, when real change starts happening. Yeah, I think, you know, I try to be careful of this idea as mindfulness as panacea, right? Like a cure-all that will, yeah, you know, heal all our, you know, you know, if you, if you meditate enough today, Mark, I think you will become a Hollywood star tomorrow. I'm pretty sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> try to stay away from that. And, and actually, you know, with a lot of the organizations I work with, this becomes an ethical debate internally. And I'm always on the side that we have to be very responsible because the temptation for the marketing teams, even with some of these mindfulness technologies um, or mindfulness apps or whatever is to like go out there and put an ad saying, you know, mindfulness will help you with anxiety. And I think that's a dangerous and irresponsible thing to put out there. Right. Um, I think I wrote in the blog post, sure. I, I pasted an image of a headspace ad that, you know, it didn't make a clear claim. It just had three words, but the three words were everyday happy. And, you know, it's not a very clear claim. It's not saying like use headspace and every day you'll be happy. So it's it's kind of defensible from a legal perspective, but I'd argue it's like a very dangerous promise to be making. Um, you know, first of all, meditation is not for everyone. Journaling is not for everyone. You know, therapy is very important. Medication can be very helpful if people have serious mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff is, is part of the journey. But I think the important piece here is what you're trying to get is a sense of self-awareness that will help you navigate life with a little bit more clarity around how the things in your life are affecting the way you feel, the way you treat yourself and the way you treat others. And that's the kind of thing to keep an eye out for. Now, for me personally, sitting in silent meditation has, has greatly boosted my ability to be self-aware. 
Um, many people report yeah. that it gets very difficult before it gets easy. And so you need to be looking out for that. Just because you try it once and it's hard doesn't mean it's not going to pan out for you. But at the same time, some people do it for a long time and they don't really get that level of self-awareness, but they might actually benefit more from like a journaling practice or from therapy or from medication or anything like that. But the point that you're trying to make that I think is where I, I very strongly feel resonance is that when you do find whatever it is that gives you that more self-awareness, the fruits are that the the fruits that emerge from that are really multifaceted, like both in the sense of that you feeling more present in your daily life and and perhaps maybe even sleeping better and and being more present for the other people in your life and and having better, more fulfilling relationships. But there's also this sense of like in the moment, you you notice the way things are affecting you. So so you one thing that's been happening to me is like you notice if you spend a bunch of time on your laptop, when you sort of get up from that laptop, you're like, wow, I feel kind of bugged out. I feel mentally sort of exhausted. My thoughts are kind of racing. That's an important insight to understand that that is the effect that your workday has on you. And so that has recently inspired me within the past couple of months or so to really strictly ad adopt a, a break every 25 to 30 minutes um, where I use that break to identify, you know, is it my body that's stiff or does my mind feel kind of off or maybe I just want to take a, like a power nap or I just want to have a cup of tea or something. But the self-awareness allows you to identify what it is you need in the moment. And whatever road you take to get there, I think is okay. Um, but I think it's an important piece that we're all going to need more than ever, given the world we live in and the demands on our attention and the information overload we're facing. Wow. I mean, I couldn't agree more on that. I mean, the, the one thing uh, that I, I wanted to touch on is because no one, I haven't talked about this and, and no one's brought this up, but just the, a little bit of the byproduct of self-awareness, right? Because I think you're right. You, um, you immediately think that, think of self-awareness as that's great. It's going to be this rosy road. But I know from even my, myself, like I've questioned certain situations where, you know, where I may feel anxious or uh, depressed or down or something. I'm like, wow, is, is this just because I'm more self-aware <laughs> or are these actually, you know, things that are, that are happening right now? And, and it's probably a bit of both. Um, but obviously what's, what's, it's important in that is that you, you know, at least on my side, I'm recognizing that, but it, all, all I'm trying to make that the point I'm trying to make is, you know, those feelings aren't, aren't great, obviously. So it's, it's not, it's not just this beautiful, rosy kind of garden and, and, and grassy, um, landscape that, that this will, uh, trigger up. It could, to your point, I think at the beginning, almost feel worse than, than what you're, you're maybe expecting, but long-term, uh, as you can develop the practices and I guess get a better understanding of what's happening. Um, I mean, the benefits are just, it almost seems unlimited. Yeah. I think, I think our society often confuses happiness with pleasure. And so we sort of have hmm. this concept that to be happy means to feel pleasure all the time. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, talk to any mountain climber or elite athlete or, you know, even your friend who gets a lot of joy out of playing sports or career or family or whatever knows that the most meaningful things in life involve a lot of discomfort, you know, 
it's not all pleasure to be in a loving marriage. It's not all pleasure to have a kid. It's not all pleasure to have a successful career, um, to do what you want, you know, and to, to make the impact that you want to have in the world. It's not all pleasure to be an elite athlete or to climb a mountain. It's certainly not all pleasure to sit in long-term meditation retreats, which is something I've done a lot of. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, I think happiness, there's a, there's a piece of it that might be better equated to the word fulfillment. And it's this sense of, well, what happens when you climb the mountain? What happens when you're at the top of the mountain? What happens when you climb back down? Which I understand, I'm not a mountain climber, but I understand that's actually much more difficult than climbing up the mountain. Yeah. Um, and then what happens when you come back to your life having climbed a mountain? And what happens a year after you climb the mountain and five years after you've climbed the mountain? And 10 years after you've climbed a mountain. And how does it feel on your deathbed having known that you've climbed a number of mountains, right? So when we're talking about fulfillment, if we're mixing up happiness with pleasure, you know, we're never going to get there on the fulfillment. We're going to resist anything that's uncomfortable. And, you know, in my experience, you know, that's a recipe for a lot of anxiety and depression and, and just this sort of feeling of kind of empty hollow lack of purpose. Whereas, you know, strategically and noticeably leaning into the right level of discomfort for you and, you know, reaching that flow state and facing those challenges and dealing with them for me has led to an incredible amount of fulfillment. And, uh, you know, having a seven month old, like I am I can assure you any parent out there knows what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> totally. so it's, you know, like someone asked me recently, like, you know, one of my single friends um, asked me, you know, you know, what's it like? You're, you're a dad now. Like, you're, you know, you're, you're so far removed from the single life that I live. What's it like? And, and I the first thing that came to my mind was like, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm living at full capacity and I'm experiencing every conceivable human emotion. Like, I'm just like, have decided, <laughs> made this decision. I didn't know at the time, but I made this decision to enter a lifestyle where, it feels like almost every day, at least every week, I'm feeling extremely high highs and extremely low lows. But at the same time, my sense of purpose and my sense of engagement um, and inspiration and motivation are extremely high to match the daunting level of challenge I'm facing. And the result of that is I'm giving it all, my all every day. And by the end of the day, crashing into bed, exhausted and sleeping with a smile on my face. And you know, when, when yeah. I get to sleep, let's be honest, but, you know, by the end of the day, you're just crashing with that sense of accomplishment. And, you know, for the people out there who aren't parents, it's same is true when you hit that project that, you know, maybe isn't paying as much as it should, but you love it, or you find that career opportunity, or, you know, even in a relationship, you meet someone, it's not going perfectly smoothly, but there's something happening there that seems to be worth it. And, uh, you know, there's many examples. And of course, the mountain climbers out there, definitely understand too, right? So this sense of fulfillment is worth a little bit of discomfort. Yeah. And I think the word happy is distracting us if we don't understand it to be more all-encompassing of human experience than just this narrow sense of, I want to eat sweet things and feel physical pleasure and be lazy and sleep all the time. You know, anyone who does that, you know, after a day is going to be like, wow, that's great. And then after a few weeks, you're going to feel depressed in your hot tub. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, Jay, I do, 
I'm going to we started talking about it, but I do want to circle back a bit to just grab a couple kind of key practices that are in your life now. Um, obviously, there's probably been evolution, and like you mentioned at the very top of this conversation, it'll continue to evolve. But one of the things I you know try to do for everyone listening is just show all the different perspectives that uh, from people coming on the show, and you know if there's one practice or one one question that that help someone on the other side of this, then I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing my job. So I'd love, you know, Jay, if you could just share a couple things that, especially as a new dad right now, um, and with the work that you're doing that you're really levitating to or, or that are non-negotiables right now in your life. There have been periods where, um, you know, I've been on silent retreat and I even experienced uh, two months in a monastery doing intensive practice 10 plus hours a day. And if that's something of interest Hmm. and accessible to people, I highly recommend long-term silent retreats. As we just discussed, it may seem daunting, but sometimes it's helpful to lean into that discomfort if you're ready. Um, You know, and there have been periods of time, you know, I've kept up a a daily practice of mindfulness for quite a while now, but of course that's been very difficult in the past half year or so becoming a father. Um, So whereas in the past I have done, you know, an hour a day at times. Now I'm getting about 10 minutes. Even that seems like a stretch, but what I've sort of done is, is work that into my son's bedtime routine. So, um, as part of the bed, oh, yeah. So as part of the bad. bedtime routine, you know, for those of you who aren't parents or who haven't experienced this kind of thing, it's really helpful for, for a young child to, to get a stable pattern of activities before you put the child to bed. So they understand the day is over and now it's bedtime. And so that might involve like reading some books, singing some songs, maybe a feeding session. Um, and so there are elements there where, um, for example, when my wife is feeding my son, it's a perfect opportunity where I'm not that needed, um, where it would be easy to sort of, you know, walk out in the hall and glance at my phone for 10, 15 minutes. In fact, what I do is I sit there and I, and I practice mindfulness and, I, you know, it's a great grounding point for me. And I think it also sets the tone for my new young family um, because, you know, I just believe that that our son Oliver is experiencing a little bit of that calmness and he certainly has curiosity of what daddy's doing in that moment. Um, so that's a, that's an example of kind of working this stuff into your, into your lifestyle. So um, what would you be doing, Jay, just to get a bit tactical? Is that, yeah, is that sure. like meditation or is that just kind of yeah, seeing so, what's happening? So I've experienced a, a large range of practices. And I think probably your listeners are pretty familiar with practices that might be about paying attention to your breath. Um, And probably, you know, maybe you've experienced some loving kindness or compassion practices where you try to cultivate a positive emotion. And so I'd like to open the, the perspectives to some practices that have been really instrumental for me that I do quite often that aren't in those sort of more well known categories. So one is this sort of more open awareness. So not trying to narrow your attention to your breath, but just noticing whatever your attention is, is being drawn to, including sound. You might even do it Mm -hmm. with open eyes and looking at the visual experience of the world. So even right now, as you're listening, so out there, all you listeners, wherever you are, there's something that you're seeing in front of you and you can bring mindfulness to that. You can notice the color. You can notice the texture and the shape the shapes around you. Maybe you're noticing the play of light, some shadows, some reflections, 
And you can really bring mindfulness into your visual experience of the world around you, right? And so similarly, wherever you are, you might be hearing sound. One of those sounds is probably the sound of my voice. But you're really processing my language in a really semantic way, trying to understand what I'm saying. But maybe you can take a second now to pay attention to the tone of my voice and the sound of it and the way the syllables connect to each other. And maybe there's sounds in your environment that you can pay attention to. So, you know, there's a lot of ways you can practice and explore mindfulness um, in your practice. So if breath meditation feels really boring to you, don't let that turn you off the whole practice. You can try other techniques. What does it sound like? Or sort of what does it feel like to spend five minutes just listening to the sounds around you as if you're listening to a piece of music, you know, closing your eyes and really soaking in the sound environment. Uh, one other practice that I think is really important is if you find yourself kind of feeling like meditation is this thing you need to force into your day. It's like on the to-do list. You just need to get that thing checked off on your to-do list. I'd encourage you to try kind of letting go of the like task-oriented view of mindfulness. Oh, I need to do 10 minutes. I need to do 20 minutes. And maybe setting a more open-ended intention, which is like, I'm going to set a place aside in my house where I'm just going to sit and take at least one breath every day. So it kind of defeats the whole idea that you need to like get five minutes in to get your training in and just yeah. kind of open yourself up to the freedom of being kind of kind to yourself and saying, you know, even if I just want to take one breath, that's fine. I definitely have five seconds. That's fine. And if that day I take one breath and I feel like that's enough, I can totally get up and walk away and feel great about it. But if I do sit there and feel like, you know what, I need five minutes, you can kind of indulge yourself and take those five minutes and see if you can bring that positivity. So instead of judging yourself, I need to stick with it. Oh, I missed my meditation today. Trying to make it something you can really easily succeed in. Um, and, and then one more thing that might help your listeners is there's also a whole family of practices about doing nothing at all. And the Zen, they call this Shikantaza. Tibetan tradition, they call it Dzogchen. But I think the secular mm. version is really just open awareness, um, choiceless awareness, just sit down for five minutes and do nothing at all. Bring no effort to the practice, bring no specific idea of what you're supposed to do. If you notice yourself trying to do anything, just let go of that and just let yourself be as opposed to trying so hard to do, do, do all the time. So I know I mentioned a lot, but I think the, the summary of what I'm trying to say is, you know, I think Richie Davidson, who's a neuroscientist out of Madison, Wisconsin, who studies mindfulness, uses this metaphor that meditation is kind of like sports. So if you tried one technique, you tried journaling or you tried paying attention to your breath and you didn't really find a good resonance, that would be like if you played baseball and now you're like, sports aren't for me. Well, baseball is one sport. There's a lot of different sports <laughs> out there. You should maybe try exactly. playing a few other ones and try to find your game the one that fits with your personality and fits with your lifestyle. And maybe then you can get a little bit more momentum in building this kind of self-awareness into your life. So I hope that helps. Uh, this is just like a little download from what I've experienced. And, you know, I hope it helps you. Oh, those are great. I mean, selfishly, it, it helps me <laughs> as well. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try these out. Um, I love it because they're, they're so accessible. And I think the other thing for anyone starting or who wants to get started, they're, 
I mean, there's really, there's really no barrier to, to get going. Right. So thank you for, for sharing those. Um, I do want to be mindful actually of your time. So I'm going to start wrapping up Jay, but I, I cannot let you go without getting your three reflective prompts. Um, because that is uh, one of the staples for, for this podcast and just trying to, again, trying to help people slow down and, and reflect and bring different perspectives uh, through the power of, of good questions. So, you know, if there are there any prompts that you find, and it could be in the past, could be now, but just questions that you feel um, really help you self-reflect? Yeah, I think, you know, when you asked me that question, you sent me that question in advance and I really kind of gravitated to some of the major turning points in my life. Those those points in my life when I described jumping off a cliff, um, and in those turning points, if I reflect back on them, um, I think the first question that comes to mind that I was really asking myself a lot is, you know, what? How does how does my response to this situation best align with kind of my deeper values? So when making a decision or uh, responding to a challenging situation to kind of remind myself, and I've even done some exercise to actually clarify and write down what are my deeper values? What are the things I care about in this life? Things like family and, you know, art and culture and nature and elements like that. And really kind of revisiting that list of values and say, you know, in a decision point, for example, how do these different options presented in front of me align with, my deeper values. Um, and that can be a very grounding reflection. Um, I love that. The, the second thing that sort of came to mind was this sense of my own, what are my, how are my own personal biases influencing my view of this situation? Um, and this is really getting at the fact that we all have a narrow perspective. So how does my perspective as a man influence my view of this situation? How does my perspective from my previous education and experience influence my view of this situation? You know, how does my um, my view as a you know Canadian with parents from India, sort of my like cultural identity and, and ethnicity, um, affect my view of this situation? How do my values and priorities affect my view of this situation? How do my like other current life situations affect my view? of what's in front of me. Um, so that's been a huge, you know, I think that's something I've, I've learned from being a trained qualitative researcher. So anthropologists and ethnographers often need to do this in their papers to sort of state their biases and limitations. So if you're confronting a challenging situation and you're wrapped up in thought about it, or you're trying to make a difficult decision, it can be really helpful to be like, you know, how is my view of this narrowed by some of the biases that I have? I love it. I mean, I think it just, it really at the core gives a, an opportunity to pause, right? Instead of just autopilot, um, going, going to an autopilot mode and just answering, right? Or plowing through whatever the situation is. That's great. Really great prompt. Yeah. And the third, the third one, this is going to be a hard one to parse, but I'm just going to take a stab at it. Uh, you'll see why in a second. Um, there's a sort of limitation with our kind of discursive, rational, linguistic thinking in terms of understanding the world. Um, in other words, there's things that are a lot easier to get down on paper 
than others, right? So some things about a relationship or about a big decision or a career are really easy to get on paper. Like in a relationship, for example, you can sort of write down, what are this person's interests? What are my interests? You can think about that and be like, oh, this person really does have the same interests as me or they don't have the same interests as me. Or if you're making a career decision, I mean, you know, clearly the salary and the job title or whatever is being offered, the hours, these are really easy, logical, rational things you can compare. But there are other things that are just important to your quality of life that are harder to get down on paper. So for example, in a relationship, how do I you know, feel when I'm with this person? Or how does this person influence who I might become? <laughs> right? It's just like lofty things. <laughs> and then like with a career um, or a job opportunity, for example, like, you know, what's the culture? Like, are these people that might become my friends? <laughs> you know, are these, yeah. you know, the, the, is this the kind of environment I want to spend my time in? And what I've noticed in myself, and I think many people um, out there do the same thing, is we tend to prioritize the rational stuff like extremely heavily in our decision-making and in our responses to challenging situations. And we sort of forget these sort of intangibles that have just as much, if not more of an influence on our lives. So I think one of the reflection questions that comes up for me often when I'm confronting you know, a decision whether to work on a certain project or to go to a certain place is to remind myself that by definition, all of my quote or like capital T thinking about this is a bit limited, that I have to take a second to reflect uh, kind of in a non-conceptual way about how this is going to impact my quality of life and the, and the lives of others um, without getting wrapped up into the sort of loops of thinking that are likely to lead me to only think about crunching the numbers and the really rational pieces of this decision and more of the emotional and qualitative components and the interpretive components of how this is going to affect my life. I love it. That's so Jay, if I'm hearing this correctly, would it be a, a prompt around how will this impact my quality of life? Or more like, like, you know, um, how is, you know, how is my tendency to overthink things influencing my view of this situation or perhaps even something like, um, you know, what what intangible or emotional aspects of this situation am I not um, considering enough? Yeah, I love that. I think that that because what what I like about that phrasing is that you know someone just seeing that prompt right off the bat can can get some value out of it. But then for the ones that you know come into minute number, let's say 56 of the podcast, get a whole other perspective on how to answer that one, which I think is super valuable. <laughs> yeah, I guess that. I mean, <laughs> so, the reason why it's hard is I, because that we're using this sort of discursive language to frame these yeah, questions exactly. and stuff like that. And what I'm really getting at is like the, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the, the texture and the color in front of you, the sounds in your environment, all of those things are going to be affected by your decisions and your choices in life. And that you know, you sort of have to consider those as well. And that's hard to do in a spreadsheet, so to speak. Yeah, of course. 
Well, these are great. I mean, I could, I feel like time is just flying. Um, I could speak to you for, for hours. I've have in the past, so <laughs> <laughs> I know it's possible. Um, so, you know, last question for you, Jay, and it's really, you know, all said and done. If you, if you just push the chair back, you know, what, what really makes you smile these days? My seven-month-old baby's smile. It's amazing how that little three-second smile can wash away, you know, potentially eight hours of <laughs> frustration oh, yeah. or lack of sleep. You know, it's it's a magical thing. Yeah, it's totally, totally unbelievable. And one of the things that, here's a funny anecdote, is that, you know, I've been singing in Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, right? And he gets kind of sure. transfixed by the song with kind of a very serious face. Like he's just sort of like curious, but just randomly when I was silly, like kind of, you know, you know how you do with kids, you just get do silly things. Right. I started changing the last word of each line of twinkle, twinkle, little star into like a heavy metal growl. (laughs) And he starts, he just beams with this huge smile every time I do it. So now I'll be like hanging out with him and I'll be like, twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> and it, so stay tuned for your Spotify know, playlist. He just, Heard it here. He just erupts in this massive smile and even laughs. And I'm just like, this is, who can explain what is happening here? It doesn't, there's no room for any trying to rationalize this. It is just so funny and joyful and just like makes my whole day, you know, no matter how exhausting I might've been. I love it. I mean, I can't think of a better way to to end on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I've got a big smile on my face. And Jay, I just want to thank you for your time. Um, you've been a great friend. And this conversation is, uh, I hope, will be valuable for others. But mainly just want to thank you for your your life mission and everything you're devoting your time and attention to these days. Um, it's just such great work. And it, it's needed. And I'm I'm really proud to say that I, I know you and that you're one of the pioneers kind of pushing through and, and working together with others to, you know, just make this, this world uh, an even better place. So thank you. Well, it's my absolute pleasure. And, and the same goes to you. And, um, you know, I've listened to a number of these podcasts and this is what we need more of, you know, this kind of, this kind of conversation, this kind of reflection, I think the more we can, get this happening in in all of our lives, I think the better we'll be. And that's just how I feel. All right, you made it to the end. Thank you so much for your attention today. It means the world. If you're enjoying these conversations, drop us a review wherever you're listening and share these chats out on the socials. Make sure to stick around for the next episode dropping. It's with a pretty big podcasting host himself, one of the legends in the space, Jordan Harbinger. 